The Hypnotized Masses. This is a review of two books, Psychology of Totalitarianism by Matthias Desmet and The Coronation by Charles Eisenstein, both from Chelsea Green Press. The review by Josh Middledorf, read by Josh Middledorf. In medicine, there's the pathogen and there's the terrain. Do we get sick? when we are exposed to an aggressive microbe, or when our immune systems have been weakened systemically? Yes. And in global politics, there are the same two perspectives. The West is now free-falling into totalitarianism. Is it because we have been bamboozled by wealthy and powerful con artists who control our governments and our media? Or is it because we are lonely and rootless with empty souls vulnerable to any demagogue who offers us a mirage of community and meaningful social participation. Yes. We are slowly emerging from a derangement of our institutions and our economies associated with the COVID pandemic. Responses to the pandemic in most countries were channeled toward measures that were tragically ineffective from the standpoint of managing a virus but could be understood as a means to consolidate power in central authorities while transferring wealth from the middle class to the plutocrats. How are we to understand what has happened? Our instinct may be to blame the plutocrats and their henchmen within the government. If you are inclined in this direction, you have found plenty of evidence to support your position. There has been chicanery, pre-planning, and orchestrated deception. This evidence is perhaps best articulated in Robert Kennedy's book, The Real Anthony Fauci, with worthy additional contributions from Drs. P. and G. Bregan, Dr. Mercola, and Naomi Wolf. Links are in the written version of this essay. There's another way of looking at what's happened. How is it that so many intelligent and good-hearted people have been taken in by a constantly shifting story that other intelligent and good-hearted people regard as risible. In addition to narrative control at a global scale, eager compliance with questionable government strictures has depended on the psychology of crowd behavior. There are historic precedents that help us understand the pandemic from this perspective. Quote, there is a certain conspiracy dimension in most social upheavals. Those in power may have little choice but to contrive things behind closed doors. But it is easily overestimated. If anything rules from behind the scenes, it's not so much secret societies as ideologies. That quote was from Desmet. Quote, Events are indeed orchestrated in the direction of more and more control, only the orchestrating power is itself a zeitgeist, an ideology. And that quote from Eisenstein. Matthias Desmet has just released in English a book that is about much more than the mass formation narrative that has brought him fame over the last six months. It is a work of philosophy and sociology and politics, addressing the human condition as affected by the Enlightenment. His message is that the disorientation brought on by the death of God, as Nietzsche wrote in the 19th century, led to the condition that Sartre called nausea and made humanity sitting ducks for a new kind of totalitarian government that arose in the 20th century 
and has reappeared in various guises with alarming frequency. In case you haven't followed Desmet's public appearances, I'll summarize his thesis as it relates to collective hypnotism, the madness of the crowd, which Desmet names mass formation. There are four conditions that make a population vulnerable to mass formation. One, widespread loneliness and isolation. Two, lives ungrounded in a religion, philosophy, or any other perspective that gives a feeling of purpose. Three, anxiety and untethered fears. Four, frustration, free-floating anger with no obvious target. Desmet has been telling us that when these four conditions prevail, people are desperate for a story that will give them purpose and a way to contribute to a communal good. They are sitting ducks for any tin-pot dictator who offers them some false sense of community, tells them how they can be good citizens, and then offers them targets for their fear and their hate, along with an illusion of safety. The Psychology of Totalitarianism During these several months, I have thought that Desmet's thesis was a little too pat, as if he had concocted it especially for 2020, but his book has roots that precede the pandemic, and his thinking is grounded in a coherent philosophy that addresses history as well as mob psychology. He traces the roots of totalitarianism to the de-enchantment of our world, the discrediting of vitalism. These are my words, interpreting but not quoting Desmond. To the ancients, the world was alive with spirits and imbued with mystery, the ideas of the Enlightenment brought control and mastery of some aspects of the physical world, but in the 19th century, science made a bold land grab, claiming to be the one true and universal way of understanding absolutely everything. The past generated the future mechanistically, with no room for free will, let alone intervention by a divine omniscience. With Darwin, chance replaced destiny as a way to make sense of the world. Here's a quote from James Russell Lowell's poem, A Glance Behind the Curtain. From one stage of our being to the next, we pass unconscious o'er a slender bridge, the momentary work of unseen hands which crumbles down behind us. Looking back, we see the other shore, the gulf between, and, marveling how we won to where we stand, content ourselves to call the builder Chance. God is dead, proclaimed Nietzsche. Toilets are art, said Duchamp. Freud told us that we are ruled by unseen demons inside our own skulls, and Sartre gave us to believe that freedom is a life sentence. We've purchased rationality, but at what price? We've paid with our souls. What a devastating loss of meaning and structure we have endured. Our ancient traditions and mythologies may have been irrational or superstitious or even silly, but they gave meaning to our individual lives and coherence to our cultures. To trade them for the sterility of a scientific worldview was a loss from which mankind has yet to recover. It is this loss of meaning that is at the root of our discontent, our aimlessness, our vulnerability to addiction and suicide and war on a scale never imagined before the 20th century. 
and it is our emptiness and isolation that have tossed us in their turbulent waves and washed us up on the shores of despotism, eager to embrace the most defamatory and transparently false ideology, if only it offers the mirage of connection and an uplifting cause to which we can devote our lives. Desmet is critical of, quote, science, not just on spiritual grounds, but on scientific grounds as well. If you don't know of the most widely cited research paper in the field of epidemiology, I refer you to John Iwanides, professor at Stanford, 2005, who demonstrated to us with rigorous methodology that it can be proven that most claimed research findings are false. The field of medical research is where we see this most blatantly, but it's a problem that, to a lesser extent, haunts the biological and even the physical sciences. Desmet explains the problem in terms of human frailty and methodological biases, but in the case of medical research in particular, I think it's obvious that the elephant in the room is pharmaceutical money. Hugh pays the piper, calls the tune. Civilization and its discontent. It's a quote from Desmet. In previous chapters, we discuss how science tipped from open-mindedness to dogma and blind conviction, how its practical applications isolate people from one another and from nature, how its utopian pursuit of an artificial and rationally controllable universe equates to the destruction of the essence of life, and how its belief in objectivity and measurability of the world leads to absurd arbitrariness and subjectivity. In this chapter, we will discuss the fate of another great ambition of science to liberate man from his anxiety and insecurity, as well as traditional moral commandments and prohibitions. In case you haven't noticed, today, commandments and prohibitions abound. Desmet cites examples of the ways in which modern governments have sought to control all aspects of human interactions with an absurd proliferation of rules. The U.S. tax code alone contains more words than the King James Bible. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. But from the perspective of the totalitarian regime, all the absurdity and the confusion created by a maze of contradictory directions only adds to their advantage. The more people are confused, the more likely they are to seek refuge in a simplistic demagoguery. Desmet draws on the work of two past visionaries who experienced mass psychoses of the 20th century and lived to share their insights with us. Hannah Arendt dissected the Nazi aberrations and Alexander Solzhenitsyn fictionalized Soviet Stalinism. Arendt, indeed, foreshadows most of the theory in Desmet's book. She understood that Nazi rule was not accomplished through brute force or terror, but predominantly by enlisting ordinary citizens to do unspeakable things. She understood both the population-level preconditions and the communications techniques that enabled mass hypnosis for despotic ends. Solzhenitsyn emphasized the power of a compelling ideology to make people override their instincts of decency and compassion when convinced that their heinous acts served a higher, long-term purpose. 
the majority of those in power up to the very moment of their own judgment were pitiless and arresting others, obediently destroyed their peers in accordance with those same instructions, and handed over to retribution any friend or comrade in arms of yesterday. That was from Gulag Archipelago. The authoritarian regime inevitably comes, in the words of Arendt, a monster that devours its own children. The Coronation Eisenstein tells this story on an even grander scale, reaching back further into our history and our mythology. He speaks of separation as the primary dynamic, beginning with the agricultural age. From Eisenstein, we can appreciate the true epochal nature of the current crisis. We are asked to choose between the logical endpoint of mechanization, predictability, and control and separation, and an alternative that is yet only an indistinct vision, commitment to freedom and life and trust, an adventure with unlimited potential but no assurances. Eisenstein's style is not for everyone, but I find him completely disarming. He allows us inside his own mind, narrates his internal processes, as he tells his story, regurgitates his inner doubts, trying to locate his authentic voice from a cacophony of assimilated other. Desmet writes in an academic style, so I feel free to summarize or paraphrase. Eisenstein, on the other hand, chooses his words with an artistry that I won't presume to supplant, so I quote a few of his most memorable passages. Here, still early in the pandemic, he spoke directly to the notion that COVID-19 was a staged event, a bioweapon that was loosed on the world to concentrate wealth and consolidate power. Eisenstein asks, what is a conspiracy theory anyway? Sometimes the term is deployed against anyone who questions authority, dissents from the dominant paradigms, or thinks that hidden interests influence our leading institutions. As such, it's a way to quash dissent and bully those trying to stand up to abuses of power. One needn't abandon critical thinking to believe that powerful institutions sometimes collude, conspire, cover up, and are corrupt. If that is what is meant by a conspiracy theory, obviously, some of those theories are true. Does anyone remember Enron, Iran-Contra, COINTELPRO, Vioxx, Iraqi weapons of mass destruction? What is true about a conspiracy myth? Underneath its literalism, it conveys important information that we ignore at our great peril. First, it demonstrates the shocking extent of public alienation from institutions of authority. For all the political battles of the post-World War II era, there was at least a broad consensus on basic facts and on where facts could be found. The key institutions of knowledge production, science, and journalism enjoyed broad public trust. If the New York Times and CBS Evening News said that North Vietnam attacked the United States and the Gulf of Tonkin, most people believed it. If science said nuclear power and DDT were perfectly safe, most people believed that too. And to some extent, that trust was well-earned. Journalists sometimes defied the interests of the powerful, as with Seymour Hersh's expose of the Milai massacre or Woodward and Bernstein's reporting on Watergate. 
science in the vanguard of civilization's onward march had a reputation for the objective pursuit of knowledge in defiance of traditional religious authorities as well as a reputation for lofty disdain for political and financial motives today the broad consensus trust in science and journalism is in tatters their loss of trust is a clear symptom of a loss of trustworthiness our institutions of knowledge production have betrayed public trust repeatedly as have our political institutions end of quotation in long lists of scandals past duly referenced eisenstein demonstrates solidarity with the rebels myself among them who are calling out the intrusive and ineffective measures imposed on a compliant populace by a ruling elite which seems frequently to disregard its own safety rules but to expose the liars and petty demagogues and string them up in public squares would be he tells us a shallow and ineffective response we must look within ourselves to the culture and the technologies and the lifestyles we have embraced without attention to the consequences the sources of goods we consume and the broader implications of the way we live he identifies the pandemic as a logical extension of choices we have made over hundreds of years if it points us to a regimented dystopia well we have been headed toward that dystopia for at least 200 years so here's a quote from wordsworth 1802 to demonstrate that the world is too much with us late and soon getting and spending we lay waste our powers little we see in nature that is ours we've given our hearts away a sordid boon this sea that bears her bosom to the moon the winds that will be howling at all hours and are gathered up now like sleeping flowers for this for everything we are out of tune that's wordsworth 1802 the task before us is to rise above the mindset in which every problem is caused by an enemy with whom we can go to war our discontents are endemic if covid offers us the glimpse of a dreadful future then it has served a valuable purpose we find ourselves at the nexus of diverging paths here's another quote from eisenstein of the hundred paths that radiate out in front of us some lead in the same direction we've already been headed some lead to hell on earth and some lead to a world more healed and more beautiful than we ever dared believe is possible i write these words with the aim of standing here with you bewildered scared maybe yet also with a sense of new possibility at this point of diverging paths let us gain down some of them and see where they lead end of quote well who could disagree with that but the catch-22 is that we are not choosing together perhaps we are not choosing at all but enduring choices that have been imposed upon us eisenstein challenges us by listing chronic ills in our world that are objectively more serious than covid worldwide five million children starve to death each year and that was 2013 twice this number now according to desmet if we can pull together our efforts to stop the spread of covid then it must be possible that we can support a much smaller cheaper easier and less inconvenient campaign to end world hunger but who is the we to whom he is speaking 
we shut down businesses we wore masks and stayed at home in response to government edicts supported by saturated bombing by the mainstream media the corporations that own our governments and supply revenue to the mass media profited handsomely it is the concentration of wealth and power in these corporations that made possible the measures and it is the pecuniary interests of these same corporations that engendered this worldwide, quote, cooperation. I conclude that we will end world hunger only when it is in the financial interests of the world's largest corporations to do so. Unless, unless the power structures of our world can be democratized, exactly how this might occur is difficult to imagine. But I personally am hopeful and Eisenstein more so. He acknowledges that defanging the world's military and opposing the wealthiest entrenched powers seems plausible only with a form of magical thinking. It will require a miracle. But, to quote Eisenstein, what is a miracle? It is not the intercession of a supernatural being into material affairs, not an event that violates the laws of the universe. A miracle is something that is impossible from one's current understanding of reality and truth, but that becomes possible from a new understanding. This is from a 2009 essay. Eisenstein does not address the democracy that we have lost and does not tell us, once we have chosen one from his garden of forking paths, how it is that we will be able to secure the freedom to realize it. Perhaps miracles, like God, are ineffable and, quote, Whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. That's Wittgenstein. Strategic Implications The insights of Desmet and Eisenstein rooted in Arendt are important for strategies moving forward. We will need to awaken large numbers of hypnotized people in order to reverse the global slide into centralized control. Let's not abandon the other perspective based on evil conspiracies rather than emergent crowd psychology. The books cited above do not address the secret acts of destruction or the people behind these acts. At the same time, we are being assaulted with bioweapons. We are also, and here I list other attacks on humanity and each one is linked in the written version of this essay. Agriculture has been under attack. Supply chains have been under attack. Energy sources have been sabotaged both physically and politically. The West is playing brinksmanship games with nuclear powers Russia and China. Weather has been weaponized to create droughts, floods, and heat waves. Children are being trafficked to assure that many of our public officials are vulnerable to blackmail any of these crimes would enrage even a hypnotized populace were they widely publicized. So while we work to awaken our friends and neighbors from the sleeping beauty spell, let's also continue with the vital work of the alternative media reporting these atrocities and also embarrass the mainstream media for not reporting them. Here I link to a video you might want to watch from Academy of Ideas through after school, S-K-O-O-L, called A Killing of the Mind. Personal implications. For those of us who are skeptical of the mainstream narrative, 
Desmond assures us that speaking our truth is far from useless. It is only when the unhypnotized minority stops speaking that the despotism enters its terminal, violent, and destructive phase. Our voices are most effective when they are calm and logical and respectful. Timed and titrated to the receptivity of the interlocutor or audience, at some level, everyone realizes the weak internal logic of the story that they have been told, and the truth will resonate even or especially if the initial response is angry rejection. It is rarely productive to argue on the same emotional dismissive level at which we are sometimes received. But we ourselves also benefit from this exercise of bearing witness to truth. An individual's adherence to a deeply felt truth is not only a powerful social corrective, but also a powerful therapy in hard times, like a backbone providing internal support. This was the experience to which Solzhenitsyn so eloquently attested. Both Desmet and Eisenstein offer us a hopeful overview. For two years, we've been privileged to experience Marley's ghost with a vision of the dystopia for which we are surely headed if we don't change course. Whether we need to storm the Bastille and guillotine Tony Fauci and Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab, that's subject to question. But there is no doubt that we need to examine ourselves and our communities consciously to choose a more intimate connection to our own hearts, to our families and communities, to nature. So there's a commonly misquoted passage from Gandhi, be the change you want to see in the world. He didn't say that, but what he did say is, quote, We but mirror the world. All the tendencies present in the outer world are to be found in the world of our body. If we could change ourselves, the tendencies in the world would also change. As a man changes his own nature, so does the attitude of the world change with him. This is the divine mystery supreme. A wonderful thing it is, and the source of all our happiness. We need not wait to see what others do. End quote. To counter the dominance of the British textile industry in India, Gandhi took up his spinning wheel. Today we can plant community gardens. We can share with neighbors things we don't often use. We can gracefully receive what we have been given and give forward where we see an opportunity. We can speak our satyagraha to those who are open to hearing it. We can stretch to overcome our fears and trust this abundant world to offer us the support and the safety that we need. We can listen to the people in our lives who want listening and care for the people who need our care. In these ways and in other ways to which your heart will guide you, we can begin to build the connected and integrated and loving world that will remain after the world of greed and violence self-destructs. And I end with a quote from Dostoevsky, beauty will save the world.